0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: I'm going to talk a bit about the population health risks of a changing climate. I'm going to run through some of the key risks that we think about. I will not cover all of them and really look forward to your questions at the end. You all know the climate is changing. The figure on the left is one of the iconic figures from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, special report on warming of 1.5 degrees. The zero line is pre-industrial temperatures. When climatologists look at temperatures, they basically use what we use in public health. They use Z-scores. They look at anomalies around a mean or around a baseline. And so you can see the zero line. You can see the increase in temperatures. These are measured increases in temperature. You can see starting in about 1970 or so, a real change in the slope of the curve and see the dramatic increase in these global mean surface temperatures since that time. You can also see the near term projections. The report concluded that the Earth has warmed about one degree C since pre industrial, and that another half degree of warming is expected between 2030 and 2050. Of course, it's not just the mean, it's also the extremes. This year has seen really extreme heat waves. We've seen heat waves that are unlikely to ever have occurred without climate change, massive flooding events. And I don't think I need to mention wildfires, we're all far too familiar with those. Warmer air holds more water. What we've seen in the United States is that as temperatures have risen, there's been a 20% increase in heavy precipitation events. We see the same number of precipitation events, they are just distributed differently, so we're seeing very heavy events. The map on the right is from NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. They put out seasonal forecasts, this is one for last year, and it was the flood outlook for the Midwest. And you'll recall what happened last year of the very significant flooding as the picture on the bottom shows. All of these have consequences for our health. It's important to think about how climate change, which occurs over 30 years or longer, has the impact it's having on us today and is likely to have in the future. You can see the box in the top third of the figure shows demographic, socioeconomic, environmental, and other factors that influence the magnitude and pattern of risks. In other words, it's really important when studying climate change and health To think not just about the climate, but to think about a whole range of other factors that interact with climate change, that affect the global burden of disease. You can see then that these factors then influence the exposure pathways that we're used to in health, the extreme weather, the heat stress, the air quality. And on the bottom is a list, a far from complete list of all of the health outcomes that we're concerned about. When you look at this list, this is almost everything that a department or ministry of health needs to manage, that there are significant challenges around the world from climate change to our health. And this is a cross-cutting theme in climate change that, as I'm sure you've heard, climate change is a stress multiplier. So this no longer can sit in a separate department within a Department of Health or Ministry of Health, it has to cut across all of the activities. And that's one of the challenges, frankly, we face, these organizational challenges of having a cross-cutting issue when you have line ministries. And obviously, when you look at that list, most of the health risks of a changing climate are in children. The estimate is at least 85% of those health risks are in children. So one piece of information I hope you'll share widely. Certainly in the US, when people think about climate change, they think about polar bears. And it would be much more helpful if they would start thinking about children. Children today and children in the future and what we can do to make sure that they have healthy, productive lives. And it's not just our health, it's our healthcare infrastructure we often don't think about all of the facilities that are in floodplain zones that will be affected by particularly changes in extreme events. This figure, again, from the fourth U.S. National Assessment shows Charleston County, Miami-Dade County, and shows hospitals that are basically in harm's way with different levels of hurricane flooding. And you can see that there's far too many that are at risk when we have significant flooding from a hurricane. So the kinds of challenges we've seen in several cities in the U.S. with flooding of hospitals is going to continue and get worse with a changing climate. How do we protect those facilities and equally important, protect the people and the patients within them? So this summarizes from the North 4th National Climate Assessment, the interaction across these drivers, exposure pathways, health outcomes, and is again a reminder that when anyone studies climate change and health, we study quite a broad range of other issues as well. That we can't study only climate and weather as exposures, we have to study inequities, vulnerabilities, we have to look at land use change, ecosystem change. So there's a lot of complexities we need to take into account in our science. Lots of research has been done from people, I assume listening on this webinar, others whom you know, identifying particularly vulnerable locations, particularly vulnerable communities. We do have a fairly good idea of the major categories of people who are at risk. But as we have more research, we're understanding more and more about different groups who also are at risk. I'm gonna run through a series of adverse climate sensitive health outcomes, providing some highlights, some perhaps interesting points that we can take forward in the discussion. Hurricane Sally was just the latest that's hit the U.S. We've been hit by a large number of hurricanes so far this year. And everybody's aware of issues around morbidity and mortality. But I don't know how many people are aware of the mental health consequences. There's been significant flooding events in the U.K. that have now four years of follow-up. And one of the outputs of that research is the large number of people who end up with mental health problems. This was just after one year of follow-up. You can imagine after several years of follow-up, the numbers decline. But even today, the number of people with probable depression who lived in houses that were flooded is much higher than people who live in houses that were not flooded. It's also important to think if you're going to do some research in this area, to differentiate people who are flooded versus people who are disrupted. There's been a tendency in the health research to combine everybody who's in a flood zone, but everybody in a flood zone is not equally exposed and making sure that we're better at identifying those exposures so that we can look both at the factors pre and the factors post that increase vulnerability to these extreme events heat. I don't think I need to talk to you about how hot it was. It's been just an amazing summer. You can see the places where the summer of 2020 was in the top 10 hottest summer and those that were the hottest on record. Quite a few of those were around the Bay Area. This is a picture I took from a newspaper around Phoenix. It was just after a particularly hot day in Phoenix. They've had, I think, 130-some days this year where the temperatures were over 100 degrees. They've had days that were close to 120 degrees. Heat kills. Heat doesn't have to. Most heat-related deaths are preventable. The first major heat wave that captured the attention of people who work around health issues and weather and climate was the Chicago heat wave of 1995. It's one of the times when I really miss not being able to talk with people in person because if I was in person, I would ask who is from Chicago and make sure that I get everything right about Chicago. But this happened, this event happened during the Taste of Chicago, big festival down at Lake Michigan. They've got carousel rides. They've got people who come in and perform different kind of media. Lots of food, of course, lots of activities for two weeks. And I could show you the graph. I could show you that when the heat wave started, within 24 hours, deaths started to rise. Overall, during this heat wave, there was just under 700 excess deaths. 700 more people died during this heat wave than would have died during a comparable period in the previous summer. But I show you this. This is a picture that was taken behind the coroner's office. This is three of the nine refrigerated trucks commissioned by the city from the people who brought in food for the taste of Chicago to store all the bodies they couldn't put into the morgue. In 2003, there were heat waves in Europe, resulted in about 70,000 excess deaths. A couple of years later, there was a massive heat wave around Moscow, 50,000 excess deaths. Again, all these deaths are preventable. And as I mentioned before, as we do more research, we're understanding there's more groups at risk than we expected. This is a recent uh, meta-analysis systematic review that looked at exposure to heat and preterm births, both during heat waves and by temperature, clearly illustrating that pregnant women are at risk when temperatures go up. And public health really needs to step forward and make recommendations on what to do to help protect pregnant women during these hot periods. It's also babies. This is a very sad statistic from a newspaper article that came out in 2018. If you look at the last paragraph, over 17 years, just under 840 children in the United States died from heat stroke when they were left in a car. The parents, with the best of intention, get to the store. The baby's fallen asleep. Many of you know what it's like to wake up a baby who's just fallen asleep. They just need to get a a bit of milk. They run into the store, and they don't understand how fast cars heat up, and they don't understand that babies physiologically can't manage that. These are totally preventable deaths with better education, much better awareness, and better warnings. Other issues with heat, there's really interesting work being done by Jenny Vanoss at Arizona State University, looking for example, at playground equipment. When I was growing up, most of the playground equipment was wood. Many of us had opportunities to go visit our primary healthcare providers for splinters and other things when playing on wood. And so all of this equipment's now plastic and plastic gets really hot, particularly when you've got it on that black surface. So these pieces of equipment can get so hot that they can't, you can't really touch them during a heat wave. So thinking about how we can have our children play outside and do so safely. Heat wave early warning systems save lives. They're really effective. And there's a lot more that can be done. Heat wave early warning systems are being implemented around the world. This is a heat action plan in Ahmed. It's an area of India that's quite close to Pakistan. It's very hot. It's very dry. I was a participant in one of the first meetings around this heat action plan. And we had an opportunity to meet with the local, one of the local hospitals. It's a very large city. And I'll just say that the folks in the hospital said that they'd had some issues with the neonatal ward during a recent heat wave. This is an unair conditioned hospital. The neonatal ward was on the top floor under a metal roof. One of the actions that they took fairly immediately was reorganizing the hospital to put the neonatal ward somewhere where it would be much cooler. So when we think about adaptation to climate change, As I pointed out at the beginning, we need to think about a whole range of factors and often reducing vulnerability is the first and primary action we need to take. Wildfires, this shows that with hotter years and as the temperatures go up, there's more evapotranspiration from the soil. Soil gets drier, stresses the trees, higher temperatures stress the trees. And when there's a lightning strike, we know what happens. So this just shows the dramatic increase across the Western states. And of course, wildfire smoke is associated with diabetes, lung disease, heart disease, and a range of other adverse health outcomes. I'll also point out on the bottom is the air quality index, which only goes to 120. When we up here in Seattle, we're getting some of your smoke from California. Where I live, the air quality index was about 250. And I know that there were parts of the state of Washington where the air quality index was close to 300. Yours was much higher than that. So we're off the chart in terms of exposures and don't have a really good understanding of the magnitude of the burden it has on the exposed population. Again, if I was in person, I would ask everybody who's got allergies in this audience, usually it, it's interesting with the students. It should be at least a third or more, as you know, should have allergies. And some classes, all the students raise their hand and some of them, none of them do. And I kind of wonder if they're just not willing to put their hands up. But anyway, as temperatures have gone up, our summers have gotten longer. And many of us celebrate the longer summer. Ragweed also celebrates the longer summer. And you can see that the change in the length of the ragweed season has increased particularly in Northern areas by almost a month. We also know with higher carbon dioxide that grass produces more pollen. So much higher pollen concentrations and those are just gonna expect to increase. On the West Coast, we don't have poison ivy, but I put the poison ivy in anyway. Under higher carbon dioxide, the toxin in poison ivy also increases. So we're seeing a whole Suite of changes for aeroallergens, all in directions that will make our lives and the lives of our friends and family somewhat more difficult in coming years. The biggest health risk of a changing climate will be undernutrition through two major pathways. The first is climate change itself, changing local mean temperature. This shows you on the left temperate, and on the right tropical regions shows you two assumptions about adaptation. You can see in the temperate regions, as the local mean temperature increases, there's not, really not much change in crop yields. On the right side, wheat is growing at the thermal edge of its tolerance in tropical regions. Any increase in local temperatures is going to result in a decline in crop yields. And that is shown clearly on the left. This shows yields for a whole range of crops, includes wheat and rice, the two major cereal crops. Shows you low and high emissions in 2030 and 2080, and shows a very large decline in crop yields. The right shows you that a decline in access to food translates directly into stunting of children. So the projections are for quite a large increase in stunting. And as you know, it's not just that the children are short in stature, but it affects brain development. It affects the ability of children to learn. It affects their lifelong ability to have gainful employment. So these are lifelong consequences for not having access to sufficient food. The other major pathway is through higher carbon dioxide itself. That when you look at the plant kingdom, that plants bring in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, they break it into carbon, which they then absorb and grow. There are three pathways by which plants undertake photosynthesis. The one used by 85% of all of our plants is labeled a C3 pathway, and these are C3 crops. These include wheat rice, barley, potatoes, trees, and grasses. So most of the plant kingdom. As you can see on here, as you have higher carbon dioxide, plants do grow faster. I read something in the media just a few days ago about how carbon dioxide is plant food. And it's true, plants grow faster. But that also means that plants have more carbohydrates in them, which may have implications for obesity. And at the same time, it really reduces the nutrient density of those plants. You can see that protein declines about 10%, micronutrients about 5%, and B vitamins about minus 30%. This is critically important because there's about 820 million people in the world who are food insecure. There's 2 billion people who have micronutrient deficiencies including about 1.5 billion women and girls who got iron deficiency anemia. This is what leads to what's called hidden hunger. A recent study by Beach et al. looked at the global availability of dietary protein, iron, and zinc. The modeling took in the positive influences of technology change coming up with new cultivars, market responses, and the CO2 fertilization effect I just mentioned. On the negative side, it took into account climate change impacts on productivity and the carbon penalty on the nutrient content. The result of the model was in 2050, when you combine these negative and positive influences, there would be a decrease in the growth of global availability of protein by almost 20% by iron, for iron and zinc, about 15%. Zinc, of course, is also associated with stunting. This is what this looks like in terms of the B vitamins. These are different cultivars of rice and shows for different B vitamins how much there was a decline under higher concentrations of CO2. B9 is folate, and as you well know, a pregnant woman who's deficient in folate has a much higher risk of having a baby with birth defects. These are very serious declines. In this study that's shown here, we estimated that looking at the poorest rice-dependent countries, with CO2 you'd expect later in the century, about 600 million people would be affected. The Beach et al. study combining the positive and negative influences, not including the B vitamins, estimated hundreds of millions of people could be affected. These numbers are very, very concerning, as you can imagine. Moving on to everybody's favorite vector-borne diseases. I like this cartoon, A, because it's funny, and B, it reminds me to say that it is female mosquitoes that bite. They're the ones who need the protein from the blood meal to be able to lay their eggs. I won't go through the slide. It's some work that was done by Corey Moran, who's in my group, and shows temperature and precipitation are intimately involved in the development, survival, and reproduction of mosquitoes, particularly the mosquito that can carry dengue fever, Zika virus, chikungunya, and yellow fever. Temperature also affects the replication and transmission of these viruses. And so we know that climate change will affect these transmission cycles because it's so central to the transmission cycle itself. Just in San Francisco, between the 1980s and 2010s, there was an increase in the number of days when mosquitoes could bite. That number is going in one direction, it's going up. And so one can expect not only longer seasons when mosquitoes bite, but there's also a change in the geographic range. I was reading recently on PubMed that Aedes albopictus is in California and seems to be expanding its range. Some modeling work was done to say, what could this mean? And this is Aedes aegypti that carries dengue and other viral diseases. The left shows you in the kind of buff color, the current geographic range of Aedes aegypti. This is modeled because frankly, our vector control programs, our mosquito surveillance programs really aren't all that great for us to tell us exactly where we have Aedes aegypti. And so you can see the current suitability and you can see in the rust color the suitability towards the end of the century. I live up in Seattle and we're very clearly in an area where we could see Aedes aegypti towards the end of the century. But the presence of the mosquito doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have disease. You need to have a hot enough and a long enough summer to have transmission. So the figure on the right shows you what happens when you take that into account and shows a much confined range, still broader than where it is today. In California, you'll you'll see places around the San Francisco Bay Area that will be suitable for transmission of dengue fever, but not as big a range as the figure on the left. But this mosquito, breeding colonies of this mosquito were found in 2017 in Toronto, Toledo, and Detroit. Just like with the climate models, with the health models, we seem to be under-projecting how quickly things could change, how quickly mosquitoes could take advantage of higher temperatures, changing precipitation patterns. This mosquito is incredibly difficult to control. Once you have breeding colonies, you're unlikely to eradicate it. And so it becomes a question not if this mosquito is going to be somewhere like the Bay Area or Seattle. The question is now when. And early warning systems can make a very large difference. The top panel shows in pink the usual outbreak curve that you're all familiar with, where we don't really have any surveillance and we're pretty slow on mounting a response. If there's passive surveillance, as you know, you can detect a case earlier and you can mount your response earlier, so thereby reducing the size of the outbreak. We have an amazing opportunity with all of the environmental information that's available to set up new kinds of early warning systems where we use that environmental information to start telling us when to implement passive and when to start active surveillance. Using these kinds of systems, you can detect a first case really when the first case arises and get a response going very quickly which means that you can reduce significantly the size of the outbreak. There's an early warning system for 80s being developed. I'm not sure if it's been implemented yet in Singapore using environmental information. And it has a four month lead time, four months to warn pregnant women, four months to clean up breeding sites, four months to be ready for when the outbreak could occur. So, we really need to put more emphasis on using the environmental information so that we can make a difference to get today, no matter what happens with climate change. I wanted to spend a minute on this. It's another iconic figure from the IPCC special report on warming of 1.5 degrees. For each of these figures, the zero is pre-industrial temperatures. And you can see on the left, the increase in global mean surface temperature. The gray bar is where we are today, warming of about one degree C. In each of these bars, the white area means that we can't tell if that particular system has changed. We're not asking if it's changed with climate change. We're just asking, has it changed overall? Is there a trend in the system? When the color turns to yellow, the answer is yes, the system is changing. And we can say that at least part of that change is due to climate change. When the colors go to red and then ultimately to purple, the risks become even higher. The report concluded that for warm water corals with another half degree of warming, the Earth will lose 75 to 90% of all warm water corals. At two degrees, they'll all be gone. And you can see the figures then from mangroves, small-scale, the latitude fisheries, and on the far right-hand side, heat-related morbidity and mortality. An important point for those of us in the health sector going back to warm water corals, that research was done within this community that studies warm water corals. They didn't ask the question, what does that mean for the hundreds of millions of people who get their protein from the sea? And as we lose those warm water corals, what are we going to do about food security? And as you look across all of these figures, they all have impacts on our health and our well-being. So when we look at the health risks of a changing climate, we're only capturing a very small amount of the risks that we're going to be facing. We really need to work with colleagues in these other sectors to start identifying what the magnitude and pattern of risks could be, because otherwise we're going to think as big as our problem is, it's not gonna be as big as we will be presented with. I'm sure you've heard quite a bit about uncertainty in the climate models. Uncertainty cuts both ways. And this for me is a slide that is a real call to action. This is work that was done by Sonia Senovarotne for the special report on warming of 1.5 degrees. She looked at a range of climate models in every single climate model, the earth had warmed to 1.5 degrees. There's no uncertainty in that, all the models have warmed to 1.5 degrees. She then looked at the one hottest day in the year. The left-hand figure shows you the lower quartile of the climate models. So with another half degree of warming in the lower quartile of the climate models, we wouldn't see much at all in the United States. We could really do quite well with another half degree of warming. There would be challenges in South America, Southern Africa, the Sahel, parts of the Middle East and Eastern Europe, but you know, we'd mostly do okay. Equally probable is a figure on the right. This is the upper quartile of the climate models. It's not the most extreme, it's just the upper quartiles. So with another half degree of warming, sometime between 2030 and 2052, the United States could be in a three degree world. We are not prepared for that. And this is just the one hottest day of the year. It doesn't get into heat waves, it doesn't get into flooding, but there's consequences for all of those extremes. I know that you're gonna have speakers talk a little bit about mitigation, but I did wanna spend a minute talking about mitigation. There's something that you may have heard of that maybe somebody talked with you about is a carbon budget. And this is a carbon budget developed from the extensive amount of research that's been done on how carbon circulates around our atmosphere, our land and our ocean. And based on this information, it's possible to estimate what the carbon budget is for a 66% chance of keeping warming under two degrees. So if you look in the figure, the black bar here is the carbon budget. That's how much the earth can totally emit, not annually, but in total emit to keep a two thirds chance of keeping warming below two degrees. And you can then back out the non-CO2 emissions like methane. You can back out the past fossil fuel and industrial emissions. You can back out land use change and associated emissions. And this blue bar on the right is the remaining carbon budget. So when you hear about the challenges under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to try and reach agreements, this is what we're talking about, this small piece here. Low and middle income countries, rightly so, say they've got a right to develop. Historically, development has always been through burning of fossil fuels. However, the US and China alone are on track between our two countries of burning up all of what's left and not leaving any possibility for other countries to burn fossil fuels. So that's why there are such intense discussions and why it's so important we need to bring our emissions under control. If you're not aware, transportation is now the major source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. I know it's much higher than this in California. I think most of your emissions now are from transport. So while there's often discussions in the media about reducing emissions from coal-fired power plants, which we need to do and which is happening anyway because they're not economically feasible, we really have to address transportation. This illustrates again, how the sources have flipped between electric power and transportation in the US. On the bottom right, I like to use this because its I think it's rather attractive. I gave a talk publicly before COVID to a group and I said to everybody, what is this? And somebody from the audience piped up and said, it's a panda, which is true, it's a panda. It's also a massive solar farm that only China can put in a massive solar farm in a way that, frankly, looks fairly cute. And we just put out solar panels stretched across various distances that they are really moving forward on their energy security, on reducing their emissions. The U.S. cannot sell cars in China because we can't meet their emission standards. A really important point that I hope everybody carries forward is when you look at ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, reducing emissions from coal-fired power plants, reducing emissions from tailpipes, and having people eat healthier diets. All of those are associated with health benefits. When you calculate the avoided hospitalizations, the avoided premature deaths, and you value them, which economists like to put value on those, the value of those benefits is as large as, if not larger than the cost of mitigation. We should be mitigating for our health. There are lots of reasons that we should be talking about these health co-benefits whenever there's a discussion about mitigation. And to end with another positive note, this just came out as well from the Center for Climate Change Communication. 78% of the adults in the United States would like to know more about climate change. You can see the patterns uneven, as you would expect, but you can also see from the scale that almost everywhere in the U.S., the majority of people want to know more about climate change. They want to know more about what it means for them, what it means for their families, and what kinds of actions they could take. We have quite an opportunity to take advantage of this moment, to increase the awareness, to increase the education, so that more actions are taken. And with that, I look forward to your questions.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ebay, for a wonderful presentation, quite an overview. Um, I can only imagine the experiences that you have had in your career going to all of these different places and... Uh, seeing the challenges there, meeting people and hearing stories, and um, we encourage our listeners to uh, place their questions in the Q&A box, and we'll uh, present these to Dr. Ebi as we go along. But I'd like to start just really with um, a personal question about the work that you've done, because we have... A number of people who've been participating in our program who are interested in developing careers in public health or climate health. And um, there are certainly opportunities that did not exist even five years ago, much less 25 years ago, and more being recognized all the time. So I thought I would just start by asking if you could tell us about one experience that you had in your work going to a particular place and um, meeting the challenges, uh, meeting people and the challenges that were occurring for them, and something that left a profound impression on you that really helped you to understand the value and importance of your work. Does does anything, what comes to mind right away when I ask a question like that?
1: there has been a few experiences. I'll have to select one. But before I do that, I want to say something that is uh, probably one of the more negative things I'll say during this time we have together
2: there's more negative there's
1: There's almost no funding and it's a good time for people to start getting into this because i think it's going to start shifting
0: but when
1: you look at the national institutes of health which would be the place that this research would be funded in the u.s the funding is less than 0.04 percent of their budget and falling When you look at Europe, it's going to change this year because there's gonna be a European framework program that will have a component on climate change and health. There is gonna be some funding coming this year or next year in Australia, but they've been about on par with where we are. When you look under the international funds under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, less than half a percent of the funding's gone for health adaptation. So although people are talking about this, the major funders of this are not behind this issue. Mm -hmm. NIH is not interested in this issue. It hasn't been willing to provide very much funding to this issue. There is some funding for CDC, and as you know, CDC is mandated, and it works very hard to support our departments of health. So we do have little pieces here and there, but it is been a real challenge on the funding one of the reasons I do almost all my work internationally because I get to work with WHO and I get to go various places. And it's been fascinating to work with communities and ministries around the world. And I've, I've had pretty significant opportunities. I guess one I'll mention was more than a decade ago, I did an agricultural adaptation project in Mali. And I worked with communities in the Southern part of Mali and from what I heard later from the funder of this is I was the first person who came in to run one of their projects who was a woman. And I visited several communities. I talked with people through interpreters, of course, in the communities and selected a particular community to work with and then invited them to stakeholder workshops. And it's the first time that had more than, frankly, they had hardly any women show up at any of their workshops before. And more than 50% were women. And we sat in this lovely hotel room meeting hall um, to talk about issues around climate change. And these women had come because I am a woman and they were frankly so incredibly bored that they'd never had to sit through a meeting before and it just went on for hours and they brought their infants with them and the kids are crying and they're trying to keep them quiet and (laughs) And they came back, they came back to the next meeting. It was really pretty amazing. So it was, it was just a fantastic experience. And I've had fantastic experiences in many, many countries, as I said, so privileged.
0: What types of questions did they ask? I'm, I'm curious, what were their thoughts about um, the material that you were presenting and, and the information you were trying to obtain from them?
1: It, it's interesting because in many parts of Africa, women are farmers. And so it was really important to have them at the table. And it was interesting to hear their opinion about weather forecasting and the ability of weather forecasters to be accurate in their forecasts, not dissimilar to any conversation any of us have about, gee, the weather person said it was going to rain today and it was sunny all day. It was just lovely. So we had those kinds of conversations. Uh, The climate change piece was a little bit tough for them, but helping them understand the changes that they'd seen, because a big part of what I was asking is what had they already seen? Mm -hmm. And they described changes in how the rainy seasons had changed. It was becoming hotter and drier. They were seeing droughts during the rainy period. And they had, they used to have a big fruit and vegetable market, but they don't, at that time they didn't have one anymore because they couldn't grow enough to have a market. And so talking about the challenges that they faced from these changes in food availability Mm -hmm. and asking questions about what could be done. In common with almost everywhere I've worked, they wanted to make a difference, really, really wanted to make a difference. I had an agronomist with me who was saying, if you put in rock lines, then you can save some of the moisture. How do we do that? Explain to me how I build one, that there was so much enthusiasm for really taking on and trying to change the situation that they were in. And so almost all of these meetings I've had with groups have been very inspirational.
0: Yes, and that really ties in with what you were talking about um, with respect to our food supply in the future, and not only what will happen with the changing nutrition of the crops, but also the ability to grow the crops and certainly with the hurricanes that we've had and just this last one that really hit um, Guatemala and Belize hard, um, farmers who are trying to make ends meet um, are really being hammered and if their fields flood that may be it for them. Um, So lots of challenges, not only with just the elevated CO2 in the atmosphere, but also with some of these severe weather events in having such a profound effect on these families to grow their own food supply.
1: And that ties in with the flooding issue that we know from studies in several countries, that when you have these big events, that uh, suicide rates go up amongst farmers. Suicide rates went up in the U.S. with that massive flooding because people lost farms that had been in their families for a hundred years or more. Mm -hmm. And it also highlights something that we often don't talk a lot about in health, which is globalization. And the fact that I've read more than once that here in the state of Washington, there in the state of California, we grow so much. We don't need to worry. We'll grow our own food, but walk into the supermarket and see where your food comes from. Mm -hmm. The Heat waves I mentioned outside of Moscow were also associated with some wildfires that resulted in a dis- destruction of a large proportion of the wheat crop, which ended up with food riots in Cairo.
0: Hmm.
1: Because the major staple in Egypt is bread. If subsidized by the government, they buy the wheat from Russia. Hmm. A couple of years ago, we saw a scare around rice and we saw countries in parts of South Asia hoarding the rice that they usually export. And so countries that normally eat a lot of rice, but they buy it from somebody else didn't have access to it. So there's these complex chains we need to understand of what's going to happen when you see these kinds of shifts and how can trade, how can technology change, These market responses make a difference to ensure food security. It's a very complicated issue.
2: You've mentioned early in in your presentation the um, need for interconnection of the ministries and departments, and that we have been largely um, addressing these issues, both in terms of their separate impacts, but also siloed in departmental responses. Um, And you mentioned that early on and it particularly speaks to what you've just said now because of the interconnection and that a problem here is going to um, spiral into a whole series of other things in different areas. And so I wanted, uh, there's one question in the question and answer uh, in in the question box that is about this very specifically in our area, right at this moment in history. But I, and I'll, I'll read that to you, but also to talk about this complexity and how you've been able to address with the various ministries in globally, how to address the breakdown of the silos. And as I, as I also wanna connect that with this question here, about what is the view of the current government structure, especially the executive branch cabinet roles and the new administration, in light of the way you have described the cross-departmental solutions. And will Biden and his team have a chance to enable that kind of flexibility aside from the funding? Those are good
1: questions. And I'll start with a couple of stories as long as Catherine started with asking stories you don't really know what's going on in other situations until you get there. So one country that was absolutely fascinating was Indonesia, under the former former prime minister. There was a national climate change team that reported directly to the prime minister. They met directly, they met with the prime minister. I was there and went out to some farmer field schools with somebody from the Ministry of Health and the there's a real issue in some of the islands. Indonesia is twice as wide as the United States. 1,200 islands, 10,000 islands. I forget. It's huge, right? But much wider than the United States. And in a particular area, there's saltwater intrusion into rice paddies, the paddies. And paddies don't tolerate rice. So the rice crops really go down. So we're out there with the Farmer Field School talking about what they can do about the saltwater intrusion, but the farmers were bringing up health issues as well. And my colleague that I was working with in the Ministry of Health said, right, so now as part of the Farmer Field School, they're doing some health training. And so there's this integration across the various ministries that you don't see in lots of different places. Hmm. And so some countries do this. It's part of their culture, part of their society, part of what has evolved historically from various directives in the government. And then I was in, I helped WHO run a workshop in the foothills of the Himalayas. And we had representatives from all around the area. And at uh, one point, we were asking all these representatives to go make a pledge of what are you going to go back and do after you've had this workshop? And the people from Bhutan said, I'm just going to walk down the street and talk to the people in these other ministries so that we can work together. And the person from India said, there's 15 different ministries I need to talk with. And you just get a sense of the constraints are really significant in some places. Which is a very long lead in to the question. And in the United States in 1990, there was a Global Change Research Act. That act created the U.S. Global Change Research Program, and it is mandated by law to coordinate activities across 13 federal agencies that work on global change issues, including climate change. And it was the 13 they designated at the time. There's some that I think they should add to that. But the U.S. GCRP is this official coordination me- mechanism, and um, The USGCRP is formed of people from those 13 agencies that are put into this particular program office to work together. And they've got working groups on health that has been very active. It's NIEHS, CDC, and NOAA have been leading that particular working group. And so they coordinate on a range of activities. They talk about their research plans. They talk about how to coordinate them. So we do have that mechanism in the US. There are obviously constraints under different administrations on the level of emphasis they put on various activities. There's different research priorities under different administrations, but we have something in place that when President Biden becomes President Biden
0: is there to work with. Well, let's expand that a little bit If money were no object and everybody agreed happily with your assessment and that of your scientific colleagues, what would be your dream way of addressing all this? Would it be through an international organization with uh, sub-country organizations underneath it, or would it be community-led? Or given the complexity of all of these pieces that you've described, whether Um, having to do with infrastructure and San Francisco airport going underwater before too long or academic health centers being able to handle large numbers of people in a pandemic or um, food supply, um, caring for pregnant women, all of these things, vector-borne diseases. What would be, do you have in mind an optimal way that we could coordinate efforts to address this?
1: It's a good question.
0: The United
1: Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change has all kinds of agreements. Everybody focuses on their agreement on mitigation, but they've got really significant agreements around adaptation. And I could go through some of them, but frankly, it's very bureaucratic.
0: And if you could define mitigation and adaptation again for us, please.
1: Mitigation is reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and adaptation is for coping with the consequences of greenhouse gas emissions. It's proactive, it's reactive, hopefully more proactive than reactive. Part of the agreement, of one of the agreements under UNFCCC, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, is that every country has what are called nationally determined contributions. This comes out of this agreement. And in this, every country says, what are my emissions? of greenhouse gases, what am I going to be doing to reduce those emissions? And what am I gonna be doing with respect to adaptation? Adaptation and mitigation are two primary policy options. As part of that adaptation, the countries have all agreed to have national adaptation plans. So when you go into countries, they all have climate change teams and they are developing national adaptation plans that integrates across all of their ministries. Health has not been deeply engaged in this for a whole range of reasons. A big one's been the funding. There's other reasons as well, but health is now becoming much more engaged in the national adaptation planning. And so you really need that at the national level. For big countries like our own, you need it at regional and state levels. And what you need is basically a matrix that. Over the short term, there's never going to be sufficient training available to get somebody trained on climate change and health in every single Department of Health in the U.S. In every single agricultural unit in the U.S. Right? There, you start thinking about how many people will have to have better understanding. It's massive, and so there were several publications from the National Academies of Science. Um, our climate choices. I think it was called our climate choices. And one of them was on adaptation. And one of the clear conclusions from that is that we need to have people who understand this issue and we need to have them be available for everybody to be able to take up. We can't push climate change down into every level. We have to have a way to have people who really understand the climate models come and talk with the rest of us about what the climate models have to say. On the regional level, what I would really like to see are centers of excellence. Under NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, there are RESA programs, the Regional Integrated Science for Assessment. I think there's 14-ish in the US, and these are mandated to integrate across issues and have stakeholders deeply involved in setting the research questions, being involved in the research, and then taking the research up. So when you have a RISA, there used to be one here, it's now in Oregon. There is all this engagement with their What is it that you need? And there are climate scientists involved. There's agronomists involved. You have the people involved in this group so that you can have that co-creation we talk about in terms of conducting our research. And you know what you're doing is going to be useful, usable, and used. And that's the ultimate goal. And thinking about how to set up some of these equivalent of a RISA so that we can have these discussions across all the sectors. Most of the RISAs are based in universities and require, you know, you've got the climatologists, you've got Several of them have health, not all of them have health, but you you can think about how that could then make a difference to provide the information you need, but also through the academics, you can have that connection to people who are doing, for example, the climate science research to inform the kinds of questions that you're going to engage with with stakeholders.
0: Well, that's um, that's very helpful. Thank you. And I'll just mention that um, our first speaker in this series, um, Richard Jackson, um, mentioned that he, uh, just in the couple days before we started this series, and he spoke at the um, first session, that he had been at the National Academy of Medicine, which um, for our um, learners here, our participants, is an organization that can have some pretty hefty conversations about priorities for science and health in the United States. And he said that um, there were a number of very significant, meaningful conversations about the lack of funding through the National Institutes of Health and how most researchers who are involved in climate health topics are actually funded under some other topic, but it also reaches into climate issues, and so it's not um, funding directly for climate health, but it's sort of a roundabout way that they get it, but the, the need really being clearly there for attention and funding to climate health issues. Um, we do oh, have some... Sorry, oh, I that
1: for Just a second, is that when I look at the colleagues who've come into the field over the last few years, most of them are going to schools of geography. Uh They may be trained in health, but they're going into schools of geography Mm -hmm. because you have a higher teaching load, but you also have a bigger proportion of your salary covered. (laughs) So not like schools of public health, where we all have to pay for our own dinner and that of everyone that we're trying to support, our students, our staff, and others, that they don't have to do that. And so the amount of work being done now in schools of geography is growing quite a bit.
0: Mm, Very interesting. Interesting. Well, I'll bring up one more um, question from our audience. Is actively reducing the world's population even allowed to be part of the discussion? And whether unpopular or not, is that considered a viable strategy? What comments might you have about population?
1: Paul Ehrlich did a great job selling his book. Lots of people read the population bomb. If you look at the current demographic situation in the world, that outside of India, I don't think there's any middle-income country, and there's certainly no high-income country whose population is growing. That when you look at fertility rates, it wasn't that long ago that South Korea was a developing country. Its fertility rate is the same as Italy. They're looking at beyond rapid aging; that their population is going to decrease incredibly significantly. So India is still growing. When you look at the fertility rates in the low-income countries, they've dropped dramatically. Mali, many of the countries in Africa, fertility rates were around seven, and they're dropping now. I think they're down somewhere between three and four. So they have that. Education of women
0: Mm
1: -hmm. is the number one factor is education of women. And so people bring this issue up. But in fact, the population is not increasing all that rapidly. And the issue is when you think about the low income countries of can we make sure that people have food and water security? Can we make sure they've got economic security? And if we have education of women then we'd see a much further decline in population than anything else that we could do.
2: Actually, that is on our agenda to talk about in our final session. Yeah. Just to push forward and how mm-hmm. important that is.
0: Yeah, it really is important. Robin, do you wanna take another one of the well, um, I'll
2: audience I'll, questions? I'll take one from the audience again. Um, um, I, I This is a troubling one um, can you speak to the growing number of global leaders that promote nationalistic ideals and how this could impact the need for millions to mitigate due to climate change? In order to hit global goals, will the na- international community need to implement undemocrat- undemocratic interventions? And what would that look like? And of course, just an added comment. I figure. People did what I said they wanted to do. That would be just fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I think you meant um, to, to migrate due to climate change, um, not to mitigate. Yeah.
2: Oh, I, oh thank okay. you for reading that. Yes. Need for millions to migrate. Oh, I'm sorry. That really changes that. So they're talking about massive displacement and migration.
1: You can't tell governments what to do. Governments can't tell other governments what to do. Just look how it goes here in the U.S. when somebody tells us what to do. It it goes just about the same everywhere. And it's one of the challenges of international agreements. About 2008, there were climate change war games organized by an NGO that works closely with the intelligence community in the U.S. And this is one of the issues in the negotiations. It was a fascinating process. There was a... Two and a half inch thick briefing binder we all had before we came into the negotiations, and you come into the negotiations, and there is a discussion about how you do war games, and then you're immediately put into the situation. And as I said, this was about 2008. The situation was 2015, and there was lots of bad things that had happened around the world, and this was focused on the four major emitting countries, regions, there was the U.S., the EU, India, and China. And we came in, and it's now 2015, and we've got this binder that tells us the stuff that happened. I don't remember all of it. In the U.S., the particularly bad thing that had happened was a Category 5 hurricane hit Miami directly with the kind of consequences you'd imagine. I just don't remember what it was for China For India, it was massive flooding in Bangladesh, leading to a couple hundred thousand Bangladeshis on the border trying to get into India. And for Europe, it was long-term drought in the Sahel and a million Africans trying to get into Europe. It's 2008. And the Secretary General of the United Nations, John Podesta, led us through all of these discussions about what, what The point of War Games is you're in this dreadful situation. What could you do to prevent it? And we came up with a, quite an interesting series of recommendations, basically along the lines of what I've talked about before, of we have massive amounts of information about what the future is likely to look like. This is not like the other environmental problems in health, where suddenly people are dying and we go count the bodies and we figure out why they died. We have projections that are pretty solid of what's going to happen. And to say, if you're going to have this long-term drowning, for example, in the Sahel, nobody wants to move. They want to live where they grew up. You know, they want to have their families around. And there's ways that you can think about interventions. There's ways you can think about education and training. Um, I mentioned I did a project in Mali on agricultural adaptation in the area that I worked in should have had 30 agricultural extension agents. There was five. There weren't enough people to work with the farmers about here's the cultivars, here's the technologies, here's what you can do to improve your crop yields. And it may not be a long-term solution, but it can be a shorter term fix so that people don't have to move while we develop new technologies, new approaches to keep people in place. I do a lot of work in the Pacific. Everybody talks about the Pacific Islands, some of them like Kiribati, likely to be flooded and disappear. What people don't talk about is they're gonna be gone first. People are gonna be gone first. Because when you look at the coral atolls, they have a freshwater lens underneath the atoll. And the pressure of sea level rise is forcing saltwater intrusion into the freshwater. So there's places that are becoming increasingly uninhabitable because they don't have drinking water. Is there a solution that can keep people in place while you think about what are we going to do? It's a moral and an ethical dilemma. It's not these people's fault. They do live in a place that will ultimately have to be left. You don't want it to be an emergency You don't want it to be unplanned. You don't want it to be chaotic like so much of what we do ends up being. And so how can you buy yourself time as you think about how you can make a change? So, for example, in the country, well, in the Maldives, the capital is also called Mali. There's lots of islands in the Maldives. And they've looked at the challenges they face. And one of the things that they've done for a shorter term solution is they're putting all the schools on the higher islands. They're not asking people to move, but the schools are on the higher islands. And what do you think is happening, right? People are moving closer to the schools or moving to the higher island. They're buying themselves time. And we do have ways we can think about thoughtful approaches to give us time while we think if there's other solutions that can be brought to bear. The other critical factor here that I didn't talk about is the holy grail of climate science, which is called climate sensitivity. And all climate sensitivity is, is a measure of how much will our global mean surface temperature change with a doubling of CO2. There has been Perhaps a billion dollars of research investment into climate sensitivity for almost 30 years. And our estimate of climate sensitivity has not shifted very much over that time. It's a fundamental uncertainty. So, some estimates of climate sensitivity say that we could see a two degree increase in global mean surface temperature with a doubling of CO2, and others say it's going to be five. Well, if it's two degrees, then we might not have to make some of these drastic changes. If it's five, we certainly are. And so a lot of this buying of time is buying of time so that we can really get a handle on what is climate sensitivity. And so we get a better sense of what our future will likely look like over the short, medium, and long term.
2: I'm. I'm fascinated, and I have so much going on in my mind about this, and both your perspective about local small interventions in communities and large institutional uh, directions. But I feel like I have to be um, attentive to other questions. (laughs) Um, And one of our our people is, and, and you've actually this is kind of a segue from what you've just said. Um, asking about what are the next frontiers for climate and public health research, and what are the pressing topics um, from your vantage point that remain to that are that remain understudied um, and need attention?
1: All of them? Without any funding, it's It's a lovely place to be in as an academic, to go talk to students and students come up with a hundred questions. And the answer to all of them is that's a great idea. Why don't you go study it? That most of the investment right now in research around climate change and health is on heat. We're not really doing much of anything in the other topics. There's a little bit here and there. It's not fair to say we're not doing anything, but you can pick up any of these issues And there's almost nothing that's been done with a student. I wrote a book chapter year two, three, I don't know, time goes by on, on cancer and starting to think about this intersection of weather patterns and cancer, everything from skin cancers, because people change their sun behavior when there's longer summers, to what does it mean to have different kinds of exposures It was the first time anybody's pulled that topic together. Nobody's done anything since. There hasn't been a lot of research since then. The whole undernutrition question is critically important. I didn't talk about diarrheal disease. I didn't talk about all of the range of vector-borne diseases outside of a very small number of them. So as you explore this, you just find out there's just a very, very long list of questions. And answering which is the most important is interesting of do I answer it locally? Do I answer it regionally? Do I answer it globally? So globally, I can tell you what the biggest risks are. That's not necessarily gonna be the biggest risk in your region. A student graduated, I think two years ago from the University of Washington, looking at pesticide and pesticide exposure in the almond orchards because of climate change and how as pests and pathogens shift with a changing climate, what does that mean for our pesticides? Another area that's not been particularly picked up, but it's very important for some parts of California. So it's a non-answer, but on the other hand, it's, it's a wide open field and we are very welcoming to have other people join us.
0: Certainly um, our occupational health colleagues are all over this question, because if you're just dealing with heat, uh, the increased heat for people who work out of doors has a profound effect, and they are seeing a number of health changes that aren't necessarily explained, except perhaps due to heat, such as people who work on farms and the increasing... Uh, amount of chronic kidney failure that they're seeing. And and what is causing that? Is it just dehydration or is it exposure to substances? So many of our occupational health colleagues have been um, much more attuned to some of these climate change effects uh, because of uh, looking after people who work out of doors, whether it's uh, imagine trying to work in the kind of smoke that we have had. Here on the West Coast, and you know, when does your employer say stop? You cannot go out of doors because this smoke is so toxic, or you know, what what is the limit? When many of us are staying safely indoors, there are people who clearly have bad exposure to smoke out of doors. And um, to bring in another topic would be we have pretty good evidence that increased exposure to smoke is a risk factor for more severe Uh, COVID, um, and the the clinical um, uh, challenge, and how severe the illness is when people actually do get it. So these things are um, all interrelated, and you're exactly right. It's going to be different on the local level versus the regional, national, and involving every specialty as well.
1: I do want to emphasize that, the issue about the occupational health and heat really does require engagement across a whole range of disciplines, not just health, but physiology, but others as well. So when you look at this chronic kidney disease of unknown origin, its prevalence is very high in Mesoamerica. And it might be not just climate change, but also the very sugary drinks that people have, the lack of access to sanitation facilities And so drinking very little throughout the day. And when they drink, it's these very high caloric concentrated drinks. But when you look at Sri Lanka, they think it might have something also to do with the number of people who work in mines and the exposures that they have in mines. And so making sure that we bring together all the possible drivers to understand the relative importance of different drivers in different areas. These are not simple questions to approach, and it's critically important that we work together with colleagues across disciplines to find solutions that will protect our workers.
0: Well, Robin will be, sorry, Robin, I was just gonna say you're gonna be wanting to um, close up shortly, but I I did want to ask a question um, also, again, pertaining to our young people who are interested to um, pursue this as a career somehow. Um, looking at the current situation now—not our ideal situation with lots of NIH funding in a few years—but the current situation, what are some paths, pathways that people might take? Would you recommend master's degree in public health, or would you recommend environmental engineering? Or you mentioned um, geology degrees, or medical school, or um, you know, what are just if you could mention a few of the pathways for people who want to make a career out of this.
1: I'll answer that question and I'll answer another one as well that I was expecting but didn't get. So to answer that question is, as I've hopefully illustrated, the need is very large. And follow what's interesting for you, that we need people in schools of geography, we need people in civil and environmental engineering, we need people in schools of public health, that there's opportunities from all of those to engage in this topic, and there's no best pathway. The best pathway is the one that you think is most interesting, the one that speaks to you and that you want to do.
2: I think that was also the way someone else answered the same question one or two sessions ago. And you clearly made a strong case for the interconnection of disciplines and ways to respond in a multiplicity of ways. We have just a few minutes. I want to just, first off, make, I'm struck. I don't know if the audience knows, um, I'm a psychiatrist and I am struck by your sense of hopefulness and your sense of, of excitement and your sense of kind of wonder in being able to assist people with this. I am aware that there are one of the vulnerable populations for mental health consequences are scientists like you who study these problems day in and day out, who we as in the mental health field call a secondary kind of trauma, and I'm just so admiring of the energy and sense that there is the, of hope that you have brought to this and wonder where you get that vitality from.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm going to answer a different question. I talked to a group of students this afternoon, and they brought up the fact that so many of them are anxious. And that is a real issue with younger people, and it is something that needs very much to be addressed. And I have a two-part answer to that. The first part is I'm a public health professional. It's our job to tell the truth. We don't want to go to a doctor and have the doctor not tell you you have some disease. We've changed the planet. We can't go back. That doesn't condemn us to an awful future. We have to go through the phases of accepting we've changed the planet for thousands of years. The past is gone. It's our choice what we're going to do with the future. And the second part of that is there are millions of opportunities to volunteer. I live in King County. Every other year, King County has Green Globe Awards. I went to the awards a year and a half ago. They give it to a dozen individuals, organizations. We've got groups cleaning up rivers. We've got groups engaging in all kinds of amazing activities. And go out and find something that speaks to you. Go out and find something you're really interested in and start volunteering. I've got a good colleague in the Netherlands who's working on a big program in Africa, planting a million trees. They've already seen a difference in the landscape, not just the trees. It changes the temperature. It changes the precipitation. She's making a real difference. And that's what she wants to do. And we all have those opportunities that... Yes, the planet has changed. The future is ours to decide. And we can decide if we're going to work for it, if we're going to go out and make a difference and do it at the scale that's important for you, do it on your block, do it in your community. I get to play internationally. There's lots of ways that you can work on these issues. But you have to start and find something to start on. And start now.
2: What? an extraordinary uh, way to end this conversation tonight. Um, I wanna thank you for your contributions tonight, that all, all that you have brought us and the many things for us to continue to think about. And I wanna thank you very much for tonight's conversation. Thank and thank you. you for inviting me, I really appreciated it.
0: Thank you and thanks also to um, our administrative staff, Tim Peters and Sari Will. Yeah, yes. Thank you so much. Thanks,
1: everybody. Good night. Good
0: night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at UCTV.tv.